You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Oh, folks. Hey, uh, we have not recorded this yet, um, but I'm already going to let you know, I'm pretty sure this will be one of my favorite conversations of the season. I'll introduce my guests in a minute, but before I do, probably one of the most important updates on Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast, particularly for my faithful listeners. Listen, guys, I traded out the candle. I couldn't do it any longer. I tried. I really tried hard with pumpkin and I couldn't feel, even though my wife said, hey, it's fine. I couldn't do it. Look, it's not fall anymore, and here I am lighting pumpkin. Um, I, I once slaughtered a buffalo, and here I am lighting pumpkin. So I do have a fresh candle. This is water mint eucalyptus. It's the smell of the motherland in Australia, smell of home. And so I'm just going to light it for us now. And uh, just lighting this candle in the simple recognition that God is with us, no matter how we're feeling at any particular moment. And, and because God is invisible, uh, that means sometimes it's intangible to, to follow God. It's, it's hard to remember God's with us. So I just light this candle here. I know this is an audio podcast. So um, for some of you, I've heard from you, you're starting your own candle lighting tradition. I feel like uh, um, Bath and Body Works probably owes me a kickback at this point for candle sales, but I digress. All right, guys. Hey, two guests today. I have Marvin Williams, who has become a friend. We're fellow capable life people. Uh, we're fellow systems theorist nerds. We also have Gina Cherian on the show with us. Marvin is African-American. Gina is Indian-American. And uh, Gina reached out to me as a listener of the podcast. And it's not the first time I've received this request. And I finally got smart enough after Gina's email to say, you know what, self, let's get Gina on the show. Uh, because I loved what she asked. And then I thought, I got to get Marvin on the show. And uh, that's because uh, Marvin is doing his doctorate at Fuller Seminary on systems theory in non-white spaces, both how to navigate white spaces as a black man, but also how to bring uh, systems theory and differentiation of self into racially charged situations. Uh, many of you know this is a journey I've been on for a long time. As a white man, I'm predominantly, obviously, a student, and uh, I'm I'm fascinated by the concept of privilege, whiteness. Um, I, as I've been doing my own workshops around the country, I'm learning a lot from my non-white sisters and brothers. And what I'm learning, and one of the things I'll be asking Gina and Marvin, is the idea of how you have to shape shift and diminish yourself when you're the minority in a majority culture. I'll be wanting to learn more, but let's start with Gina's email. And then Gina, I'm going to have you respond to the very thing you wrote. You'll go first. Here's what Gina wrote to me. Uh, this is an excerpt from the email. She said, as an Indian American, uh, Gina is obviously a pastor. As an Indian American, the concepts of detachment and enmeshment definitely gave me language to describe how my immigrant family operates. Also helped me make sense of what I witnessed in the Indian community growing up. Uh, and then she goes on to say, in Anglo-American culture, much is made of setting boundaries, establishing independence, differentiating oneself. I think American culture leans toward detachment side. In the Indian culture, the communal identity is emphasized far more in both helpful and destructive ways. Gina, there's more that you wrote. What would you like to add to that? Or what's your reaction to the very awkward situation of hearing your own email read back to you? <laughs> 
Well, first of all, thanks, Steve, for being so receptive to the email I sent. Uh, it was helpful just to give voice to kind of what I had experienced growing up. And um, one of the the blessings of growing up in an Indian community was the communal aspect. We grieve together, we celebrate together, everything's experienced together. But even our our faith kind of felt that way too. And so it wasn't until a little bit later in life where there was some people from our church who had kind of gone away, come back and said, hey, this is actually really about a personal relationship with Christ. Mm. And that hit me really differently. It was, my faith was a part of my communal identity, but I didn't really understand what a personal relationship with Christ was like. And so that's when I started to to think about how does our uh, communal identity play into our faith? And then as I moved from the Indian church into multi-ethnic and majority white spaces, uh, the question I always had was, how is it that we have a personal relationship with Christ, but also form Christ-centered community where we really are experiencing growing together, but also doing things like celebrating and grieving together. And and I think I'm still figuring it out. You know, I don't know that I have an answer, but I do know that uh, my faith community was so rich growing up, and I want to bring that to the spaces that I'm in now. And I'm constantly asking myself the question, you know, how, how do I show up as my full self here? How do I bring some of what I've experienced and also learn from the people around me? So that's just a little bit. It's really good. And your question opened up, you know, the cornerstone concept of systems theory being differentiation. And I love, I think you actually put your finger on the problem, which is in Western culture, when we think of differentiation, we think of moving away from connection. But you are really challenging to say uh, that, that maybe we may be taking it too far. And just to really note out for some of our more technical listeners, my critique of Ed Friedman all along has been that he describes differentiation as cooler and less connected than I think it really is. Just say more about, about that, Gina. What, what does it look like? What's the difference in Indian culture between being enmeshed and being connected? Well, you know, there's, uh, there's always a shadow side, right? And so the shadow side of enmeshment is that everybody's in everybody's business all the time. Right? So yeah. That's the shadow side. And, um, and people feel that, right? So there's this idea of, yes, we're all in it with each other all together all the time. And then there's also the side of, hey, sometimes I need to, I need some space and other things that I need to deal with privately. And uh, I think it actually contributes a little bit to the shame culture that uh, I know is, is part of the Indian American story and some other Asian cultures as well, where uh, there's pressure to always put up a good front um, and to make sure that everything looks okay from the outside. And then uh, again, we don't always deal with some of the underlying issues. And so uh, that's probably the shadow side of it that I would say. And again, I would say the, um, the benefit, the blessing of that kind of interconnected community, if you're in a healthy place, is you can take your mask off, show up who you, as who you really are, be seen for who you really are, and have people who are going to love you, walk alongside you uh, through the ups and downs. Oh, great. Let's let's come back to some of that. And then Marvin, I'd like to just get you in on this conversation. I know in seminary, one of the great gifts to me, as I think a, um, an ignorant white person is how I would describe it, as I had a professor, he wasn't African-American, he was African, Ethiopian. Yeah. But he, had, he was quite shocked to come to America and experience racism and things. And he had a level of anger that really attracted me, which sounds mm-hmm. odd to say, but I found it like compelling. He was quite prophetic. 
And uh, one of the things he challenged us as our African New Testament professors, first of all, he said, hey, I tell you what you don't need in your life is one more book written by a white guy. I just thought that was <laughs> funny and true. So we only read non-white theology. Hmm. But he also challenged us on the, the idea that when we think white theology, we think correct. Hmm. When we think non-white theology, we have to sift it through our white theology to decide if it's correct. Hmm. What's your take on that, Marvin? Yeah, thank thank you, Steve. Thank you for um, for for having me. I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a sense where, um, again, when we talk about this idea of enmeshment and detachment, um, there can be a fusion. So much so that um, that white theology or or theology written by white uh, authors is the right way to go. And and as you mentioned, like there's this. Yeah, it, absolutely, it absolutely. Yeah. And so the, there's the intense questioning of black theologians, uh, Latino theologians, even female theologians. And it's like like we, we take them through the gauntlet, not your gauntlet, but we take them through a, a, a gauntlet to say, if this is this right, and is it sad to say the, the white way is the right way? And that's kind of the thinking that has um, that has been perpetuated, and and that's part of the reason why I am I am going after uh, self differentiation uh, among uh, black parishioners in white spaces. Um, how do we show up as ourselves and bring our full selves to the table, and not feel like we have to? hold other uh, hold white people's fragility and and we end up not being we end up losing our identity when we uh, when we do that so the idea of bringing my whole black self uh, and helping my particularly black brothers and sisters uh, know how to show up with resiliency courage and influence through self-differentiation not enmeshing not detaching but truly staying connected to God staying connected to themselves and then staying connected to my white brothers and sisters and and really watch uh 1 Corinthians 12 the body of Jesus show up in a in a pretty pretty powerful way because when I don't bring my full self I something is missing out of the body of Jesus and um and so so there's this sense where we have to almost hide ourselves um in moments and um and I I, I think that's not what the Bible calls us to uh calls us to do and uh, so I think we have to be willing to confront and to actually say, hey, have you read some other theologians, some theolo non-white theologians? And these theologians are super, super uh, talented and smart, and, and they offer a lot to the body of Jesus. And I think we have to be okay to say that. And I think it takes a, a differentiated person to bring that to the table. Yeah. Uh, give us a, a compare and contrast, and then Gina, we might have you do it as well after Marvin. Um, what does it look like in a board meeting where you're in predominantly white space, where you're bringing your whole self versus when you're diminishing yourself and you are carrying the anxiety of my experience as a white man? I'd love to hear if you could give us a quick fleshing out of that. And Gina, if you want to jump in afterwards, I'd love to hear your thought too. Yeah, that, that's that's a man. That's a really really good question. In fact, I'm. I'm writing my doctoral thesis based on my own encounter and experience in these spaces um, where I felt like um, 
I came to this church. The church was already in existence, and there were men in the room who were who had been at this church for thirty years. and And what could I say? Um, what could I bring to the table? So in my in my early years at the church, I kind of I kind of remained quiet. I kind of enmeshed into the organization and just like, well, you know, what I have to say probably is not going to matter that much. And, uh, or I find my, I found myself after the meeting getting angry with myself because, and, and I detached because I didn't say something in the meeting. I didn't show up as my full self. And if I did show up in my full self, not you know, not belligerent and hostile and Stokely Carmichael kind of black person, but I would challenge the status quo and I would challenge the, the quote unquote, the white or right way to do it. And, and there were parts of me was just very fearful to differentiate in that moment. I didn't even have the language for that then. I was afraid because of, of potential rejection, or I was afraid for, because this this is not your space yet and um and i felt really nervous the anxiety raised up in me because i felt i wanted to say something and and did not go there did not differentiate and again i found myself really struggling and not being resilient and there were days where i said you know something i'm just going to go ahead and quit and i'm going to go back to the, the devil that I know, right? I'm going to go back to the black church and that's the one that I know. That's the space that I know. I don't have to, um, I don't have to lose my identity. I can be who I am. I can bring my full Marvin Williams self and not have to uh, go to a, you know, to a lexicon to, to use language that, that other people did not understand. So I, that's the place that I knew. And uh, there were moments where I struggled um, and, and until I became very familiar with uh, differentiation and, and understanding it and locating the anxiety in me. And then once I was able to do that, I was able to walk into those meetings and I was able to respond, not carrying their anxiety, mm-hmm. but actually showing up as who a God has created me to be. And so, um, so this, this is very, very near and dear to my heart and not just, this is just theory. Right. This is, this is stuff that I've had to actually put into practice in my real, in my real context, the context where I am today. It's actually, I, I was, as I was listening to you, Marvin, what was initially going through my mind was to think, well, I think your average young white pastor also comes into a congregation trying to discern when do I speak up? How long do I let them get to know me? But then I think you took us to such a helpful place because what you frame for us is the difference between wisdom and diminishment was the anger you carried afterwards because you had violated who you were. Absolutely. And that, Absolutely. I think that's such a helpful distinction. Do you know what's your reaction to that? You know, I was thinking about uh, even when I was um, when I'm preaching, and I think about the stories that I'm going to tell as a part of a message. And um, there have been times where I've held back on sharing stories about 
what it was like for me growing up. One, because I'm like, is this going to paint me as other in some way? Is it going to not be relatable? Or is it going to play into a stereotype that people already have? And and I almost take would take a responsibility for how the story would be heard, not just by white people in our congregation, but Asian people in our congregation as well. And so when you think about comparing and contrasting, that was it was a way that I just held back, you know, who I, I fully was. And then uh, I had some friends really challenge me in that and said, no, you know, we know you and you're not showing up as your full self. And so part of it was understanding, like, I need to, when I share stories, I I may need to give a little bit more color and context, but actually the congregation is really interested in hearing about who I am. And what I found is their response was like, that was really cool. It's so different from how I grew up, but it, it was really met with. Um, just warmth and reception. And so the more that it's received that way, then the more comfortable I felt being myself. Um, The other space I've seen it is really in in places like board meetings. And so what I didn't realize I was doing until someone pointed out to me was, uh, you know, I'd sit in these meetings and I'd constantly be thinking about how I'd be perceived. And uh, later, uh, uh, and I I didn't realize this, but the white man who was in the room with me said to me afterwards, he's like, why do you always defer to me? You know? And I said, I didn't realize I was being so deferential. And he was like, I don't want you to, you know, don't show up as who you are, as who I know you to be. And it was probably one of the most helpful pieces of feedback I had gotten because as soon as he pointed it out, I was like, you're right. Even without realizing it, I'm constantly thinking about, uh, what's my role in this room? How am I being accepted? You know? Um, and so anyway, it was just a really helpful piece of feedback for me that, helped me to, one, I felt like it was an invitation to show up as myself. And then also it helped me to just realize what I was was doing subconsciously. So Gina, for Marvin, what he could feel was his anger at like a violation of who he is. How would you help somebody notice when they've diminished themselves? Because there is a difficult line, I think, between wisdom and restraint and actually diminishing yourself and not, not being the gift that you are. What's the what's the litmus or the line cross for you that you're noticing? Yeah, actually, similar to Marvin. Afterwards, I would I would find myself critiquing my my presence in that room, or and I would find myself saying, "Why am I uh, critical of myself?" And it was oh, because I wasn't me, you know, and I held back. And the times that I did show up as myself, I I didn't. There was no um, hangover. <laughs> Let's call it that. <laughs> Ah, that's good. I like that term. <laughs> okay, Gina, while we're on you, tell me about, okay, you're in a board meeting as a woman from India with an Indian heritage, yes. and then you also have a man with an Indian heritage. What's the difference between the way that both of you show up? Yeah, you know, it's um, Indian culture can be very patriarchal. And so I would say that sometimes uh, and an Indian man will show up more forcefully, you know, and more, uh, I, and again, this is, this is very broad. Generalizations. Broad yes. Yeah. So I would say that sometimes I'll see that. And again, I think, um, and sometimes to be honest, it's hard to distinguish what is, why do I act the way that I act? Because I'm a woman, because I'm Indian, uh, because I grew up in Chicago, you know, I don't know, you know, because I'm Christian and, and it's, it's hard to kind of tease out the threads of that. But what I would say is um, being a person of color and being a woman, that intersection is is really um, difficult because I don't see it. I don't see how to show up as myself a lot in, in spaces that I'm in. And so I feel like I'm always... Um, 
trying, here's how I'll phrase it. I feel a responsibility to show up really well in those spaces mm-hmm. because I don't feel like I can just show up for myself. I feel like I'm showing up for the 15 year old that wants to be in ministry someday, you know? And uh, so I think maybe unfairly so I place that burden on myself in those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. That is extra pressure. And Marvin, I would imagine, I'd like you to let me know what, if this is true. I imagine you would walk into a room and you've, you might without differentiation, feel some responsibility for everyone's experience of you. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I think absolutely. I think, um, their experience of me and am I showing up as the safe black man or am I showing up as the, you know, the black man from the neighborhood? So I so, so um, uh, identify with what Gina just said. When, when I show up in the pulpit or when I show up in board meetings or when I show up in other spaces among predominantly white, I am actually showing up for the entire black community. Fair or unfair, um, it is this sense where I'm carrying the anxiety, I'm carrying the burden of the entire community. And so the way I show up is the way people will perceive the black community. Again, that's, that is totally unfair, but it is the burden that I carry and and this is going to sound really, really bad. When something happens in the world and it's something that's tragic, I'm hoping that it's not a black person because mm-hmm. that black person literally represents the entire black community. Again, fair or unfair, but this is what goes through uh, my mind. When I stand to preach, we have PhDs and physicists in our congregation And so, but we have also, we have uh, black people in our congregation who are, who are from the hood, who are upper echelon, middle class, middle to high class. And we have white people who are the whole spectrum and on the whole spectrum. And so when I stand to preach, um, I am thinking about at least 10 different people in our congregation. I'm thinking of the black person who thinks that I am a sellout. Uh, A sellout is an Uncle Tom, someone who is so enmeshed and assimilated into the white culture that he's forgotten who he is. So I have to make sure that I have enough hood in me so people know that I haven't forgotten where I come from. And then you have some upper middle class black people who want to know if I'm like, I've, I've done my lesson. I've done my homework on the text. And then you have the white PhDs who are saying, you know, I'm going to critique everything you say. And so there's this sense where I have to be differentiated in the pulpit, because if I'm not, then I'm trying to receive validation from so many people. And, and, and I end up being kind of, you know, kind of kind of, you know, loosey goosey, kind of schizophrenic in my preaching. So I have to say, God, who have you called me to be in this moment? And I have to show up um, who, as, as someone that God has called me to be, and he has given me this destiny, this purpose, and I have to stand and preach in a way that I'm trusting the Spirit of God to hit and apply and minister to people that I simply don't have the bandwidth to, um, you know, to hit every 
every single situation that individuals are dealing with. But this is what I deal with on a regular basis. And every weekend I'm asking, Spirit of God, give me the words. You apply them to the people's lives. And I, I just don't have the bandwidth to try to get validation from everyone in the congregation. So after Ferguson happened, uh, we have a coalition of of clergy in Denver. Our previous mayor, Governor, uh, excuse me, our previous governor, Governor Hickenlooper, convened us together primarily for political reasons. Um, primarily for when a riot would come to Denver, the goal was that we would all be friends by then, and we could stand in front of the cameras and link arms. And it wasn't cynical. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that cynically. And he wasn't doing it cynically. It was yeah. pragmatic. But we became friends. It was wonderful. It was multi-faith, multi-ethnic, multi, and both genders. And um, I remember asking a pastor in town, Del Phillips, African-American pastor of a historic Denver church. He, he's put in 40 years in Denver, a, a, just an incredible man of God. And I said, the, the problem is uh, in the white suburban church, because I'm in a predominantly white church, uh, nothing will change for us unless it costs us. So what can we do to pay? Mm. And uh, Dell said, um, just get up on stage and name black death. When, when a young black man is gunned down by the police, just name his name in a prayer and that'll be sacrifice enough. And I was like, that's, that's easy. That's not enough. And he said, trust me, that'll, that'll keep you busy. So Ferguson, I think was 2014. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think so. uh, we started that practice and everyone was fine with it. And then the 2016 ele- election happened. And then Charlottesville happened and we continued the practice we had been doing before 2016, but suddenly a significant percentage of my church started hearing it for the first time. Could either of you explain what happened there? Why did people, like, people started coming hard after me. They called me woke and they, t- they told me I was subscribed to a theory I'd never heard of in my life called critical race theory. I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know what is that. I messed it off. See how, see how brainwashed you are. You're not even aware, you know. <laughs> and so all of these conversations came out of the woodwork. And I kept trying to say to them, I've been doing this for several years. Something shifted. What, what in your opinion, shifted? Yeah, that's a man. That's a great, great question. Um, I, I think we 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 got the per, we we came across the perfect storm of race, politics, and and COVID, um, and all of them were politically charged. So what your what you were saying in 2014 through 2015 and up to 2016. It, it didn't have as much of a political charge to it and a political charge that says that you need to pick sides. But when 2016 happened, everything got conflated from politics to race to, um, to COVID. You know, COVID, even though it's a medical issue, it still had political overtones. And so now all of this is conflated and it's, it becomes under one banner. Um, and, and so for you to mention something about race, it is, you are now considered someone who is in propon- a proponent of critical race theory. And, and apparently and, and, this terrible thing called woke. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's like a compliment, but it certainly was not given as <laughs> no, a compliment. No, it's not. It's not. Yeah. So, so, so there. So, so um, critical race theory, as well as some of the other, whether it's wokeism, it became a catch drawer. Yeah, it right. became a catch drawer for any time you wanted to talk about race, any time you wanted to talk about how do we fight for justice, and justice is a very biblical term. Um, race and culture and ethnicity, very biblical terms. And so, so it became a catch drawer. And um, to actually point the finger, point the finger to say, this is the reason why I need to detach from you. So, so I think in this season, in this season, you know, on Bowen's, on, on Bowen's um, uh, scale, we probably had a lot of ones to twenties in terms of undifferentiated individuals. And, and here you are, Steve, trying to be a differentiated individual to say, I want to remain connected in this, in this high anxiety moment. And I want to, re- I want to remain connected to who I am and to who people are. And you're, you're getting, you know, Edwin Freeman talks about sabotage and yeah. sabotage will happen when you differentiate. Right. And I That's think right. you were experiencing the sabotage of you trying to be who God has called you to be. But I think it became a catch drawer under the banner of some politics and politicians. And I think we, we got caught up in the riptide of that. And I think we're still dealing with it today. Really helpful. Dina, what do you got for us? Oh, man, that's such a great question. I wish I had a simple answer for it, to be honest. I, um, I think it was a very revealing time that maybe um, for some of us in our churches that our, um, our religion was more our politics than was Christ. And mm-hmm. it was very revealing in that sense. And in the midst of that, I felt like we lost the ability to nuance and have nuanced conversations. And so it became, if you mention this, then you immediately subscribe to this political ideology and you believe this. And it's it's all one bucket. And, you know, I see it on kind of, you know, both sides of the spectrum, right? It's you're one or the other. And, uh, really as a follower of Christ, you can't put us in, you know, any specific bucket. And, um, and it, it just became so polarized and it felt like anytime you try to approach a conversation with nuance, um, it couldn't be heard that way. You know, it was like, as soon, there were words that you said, if you mention the name of someone that was, uh, you know, gunned down, you know, all of a sudden, okay, well now I put you in this camp. I can't even hear anything else that you're, you're going to say. And, uh, it was really, I mean, I've never experienced, um, quite a charge time like that in my lifetime where really you could not approach these conversations. Uh, I actually, one of the, one of the things I'm seeing now is I hope we're getting to a place now where we can actually get to talk about it a little bit more and talk about um, how do we uh, separate our politics from our, our faith. And um, yeah, I, uh, so I wish I had a really clear, straightforward answer, but I, I don't. I, for me, it actually what it was is it brought out what I think has been just hidden for a long time. And in, in that sense, it's good. I think it's come out into the light. So now we can begin to address it. Right. It revealed that we seem, I mean, since we just by definition of this episode, we're speaking in generalizations. I, I get that. Yeah. So as a generalization, it seemed like the Western church or the American church generally is more discipled by politics than the gospel. Yeah, right. uh, yeah, that, that took that. me a while to realize. I'm like, I'm. I think I'm speaking gospel, and I think 
you're hearing politics and mm-hmm. something between us. Um, and then, of course, I stepped down uh, to do this work full time. And it was interesting. Another lesson we learned in our church is there are people who will put up with me because they like me, even though they don't like what I say and they like each other. And then I put my hand up and say, this is my final year as our lead pastor. And then all their anxiety is now free Mm. and they meet with elders and they talk about all the changes that have to happen because of what Steve's done. And that was interesting. Talk about differentiation. That was an interesting journey for me. But then as the one leaving, still guide our elders and here's who we are, here's what we're about. And that doesn't also equal, you know, this political agenda. Um, I, I've got two more questions for you guys. I want to circle back to this idea of shape-shifting. When I do my workshops, uh, it's primarily women and people of color that I've learned from where when I ask us to get into the story we tell ourselves, we, we get pretty deep in the workshops. What's the story you're telling yourself? And it's, I've only heard from women, people of color, and therefore, of course, women of color, uh, the conflicting message, you're too much, you're not enough. Hmm. What, what we would call a double bind in systems theory. I will say, I don't know if it's because I'm white or the way I was raised, uh, and this may sound terrible, but I've never had that. I've, I've, I've never had both messages going back and forward where I'm constantly finding myself having to, is that your experience? Too much, not enough, too much, not enough. Is that true to you guys? I'm thinking about it because, um, yeah, it, maybe it's because I definitely oscillate between the two, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's too much in the sense of, yeah, like, we're, hey, Gina, it's great for you to be an Indian woman in this context, but make sure you don't go too far, you know, don't cross too many lines. And the not enough piece of it, I honestly, for me, this is... Um, uh, more an internal battle. I haven't yeah. heard it so much from, you know, people around me. It's the, um, and I think it goes back to the responsibility piece of wanting to show up for, you know, for me, it's all Asians or all Indians or all people of color and, and women and, and, um, trying to show up well, right? And also knowing that I'm flawed and broken and uh, won't say everything perfectly, won't represent every perspective. Um, but sometimes I feel that responsibility to other women and people of color. Like I I want to be enough for them in these spaces because I hope that in my wake that I create lots of opportunities for them. And so that's that's where I, I find the struggle. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I agree with Gina regarding the not enough. It's more of a... Um, internal battle. It's more of um, the anxiety in me that I need to deal with and, and battle. These are lies that come after me that I need to silence with the, the truth, you know, of the word of God that I am, um, I am loved. I am, you know, as David Benner talks about being um, grounded in the love of God. And so when I'm grounded in the love of God, uh, when I wake up, you know, on hopefully a few days a week where I feel grounded in the love of God, it's not an issue. I know that I'm enough, not because of what I, what I learned or because of a degree, but because uh, God says I'm enough. Uh, the, the too much part, um, I, there are moments where I want to show up stronger than I am, but I have to measure it. Because if I don't measure it, then, you know, again, generally speaking, 
is Marvin showing up as the, you know, the angry black man? Is it, is, is Marvin showing up as the emotional black man as opposed to the rational, you know, black man? So, so this is, these are the, the, the battles that I deal with, um, you know, week, week to week. And so silence and solitude and, and all of these things are super, super important to know what's going on under, as Pete Scazzaro says, under the iceberg. So when I do show up, I am showing up as my full self. And some days it is, it, there is a lot of passion and emotion to it. And other days I need to be measured because of wisdom. And so it is a, it is a daily um, posture and that only comes from um, my time alone with God and spending time in silence, spending time in solitude, hearing what... Uh, my heart is saying and spending time listening to what God is saying to me and then being able to go out from that and say, no, this is what, this is how you need to show up today. What I hear the spirit of spirit of God is saying, now, you may not want to show up that way because of, of, of perception, but this is the way you need to show up because it will be what the body needs at this point. And, um, and so it is a, Again, differentiation is a lifelong journey, and uh, we get better at it. I don't think we ever perfect it, but we do get better at it. Okay. Can I just um, say something please, to that really do, quickly? Gina. Yeah, you know, and I, I think that's so right on, Marvin. Like, I, I feel like I have to start my days that way, right? Just knowing, grounding myself in who I am uh, in as God's beloved daughter and showing up that way. The other thing that's really helped me is honestly the people around me. And this probably comes back to the communal aspect of things, but um, I feel like I've been really fortunate to have some, it just happens to be that around me, the people in positions of power have been white men, but they have um, really kind of put aside some of the power they've had to invite me into spaces, to encourage me, to invest in me, to mentor me in uh, where I, I would not have had that opportunity in other places with other people, but um, that has, it's it's been life-changing, uh, to be honest, uh, for me. And so, um, yeah, there's a communal aspect to it as well. Part of what's challenging in at least the United States is um, how and when to have racial conversation. We're recording this podcast, I think it's three days after Will Smith got out of his seat and slapped Chris Rock. And I think I just have a general posture that I don't think the internet needs one more opinion from me. So I, I rarely comment. But in this particular case, I knew this was not something for me to comment on because I'm not black. Mm -hmm. I'd like to first hear from you, Marvin. Uh, and then Gina, just fair warning, I'd like to hear from you as a wife. So Marvin, just mm -hmm. as a black man, uh, what's your take on how much that's just straight up chronic anxiety. Something's boiling in Will Smith that get, then erupts and out he comes. And how much is this a racial thing or how do you see it? You'd mentioned earlier in our interview the, the over-responsibility of representing black people. Um, let me get your take and then Gina, I'd like to hear what it would be like if your husband got up, uh, you know, can you fight your own battles or do you need another man to slap a man for you? That's where yeah. we're heading with this. What do you think, Marvin? Yeah. So, so let me first of all say this was, this was a sad moment for, um, for everyone in the world, but it was a sad moment for black men. Oh, and um, Questlove. Like yeah. Questlove, this incredible 
guy. And he's his- he's gotten caught up and swept up in this in this drama. So so again, I have no idea what's going on inside of Will Smith's mind or his um, or Chris Chris's mind. But we we do know from from the little bit that we know about anxiety, um, there 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 in my estimation, there had to have been something at on the surface of Will's heart, and the joke was the trigger that um, that where the explosion uh, when the explosion happened. So there's some hurt, some pain there. I don't know what that is. Uh, he he actually tells us a little bit in his book right. in the very first chapters that he felt like a coward, yeah. and that theme runs throughout the entire book, uh, the abuse that his mother took, and he felt like he did not stand up for her, uh, and in this moment he stands up for um, for his wife in this way, right or wrong, he yeah. attempts to stand up for her. And you, you have to wonder, is he standing up for her? Is he standing up for himself at this moment? So, so, so it, it did, it, it, it saddened me um, as, a, as a black man. In fact, we're having a conversation about this, a group of black men getting together and tonight, and we're going to have a conversation about this. I saw on your Facebook, you're, you're doing a Zoom session on this. Yep, yep. So, so I, I don't think it's, it's, it's off limits for you to have an opinion but I think it it is it is framing it in such a way. I I I don't know very much about this. This is me looking from the outside, mm. and here is my limited knowledge and opinion about this. But I, I would not say it's off limits. This is a no trust put a, a no trespassing sign up. Steve is not invited to the conversation. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think there are some unique nuances that black men will be able to talk about, whether it's toxic toxic masculinity or what what were the stories that we were taught growing up, um, and um, and being able to take care of one another. Uh, as black men, but even beyond that, as human beings, and so, um, so again, it's a sad moment. There are no heroes in this uh, in this yeah. incident, mm-hmm. and um, and I think we get to process it and and ask the question: How do we take care of our hearts so that we are not um, that we don't respond that way in? For, for the world to see. This is the reason why I think the work with differentiation and dealing with anxiety is mm-hmm. super, super important. And as soon as I saw it, I thought of what I thought of our conversation and I thought of uh, the larger conversation around uh, differentiation and meshing as well as detaching. So, um, so there really, are no, yeah. yep, no winners in this, no heroes, uh, very sad yeah. moment. And, um, and hopefully we can process it in such a way that uh, we, we move on from it. Yeah. I really appreciate that response. Like I, I, I have watched it a couple of times and it's not clear to me. I, I, I wouldn't mind if Chris Rock would let us know, did he know about Jada's condition or not? Because after, I mean, obviously you're going to be shocked after someone walks up to the stage, but his next response was, it's a, it's a GI Jane joke. Like he seemed, he was either just trying to cover or he seemed genuinely confused. What there's something going on. Obviously I don't understand it. Um, so it, it, where I get interested as a systems theorist is, is the meaning we make out of the assumptions we have is what generates anxiety. 
appreciate what you're saying, Marvin, that Will was probably on a low boil for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, and that this set, yeah. set the, uh, the stove on fire. And Dina, I think what I'm curious about is when do you want your husband? <laughs> and, and, and when do you say, I, I can fight my own, like I can, I can headbutt with the best of it. I genuinely like to know. <laughs> well, as uh, someone with a husband who uh, it would be very defensive of me in a situation yeah. where he felt like I was being attacked, I'll say this, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I had heard uh, some people talking about the situation and saying, you know, Jada should have stopped him. And uh, she and yeah. I was like, she's processing what's happening in that moment as well. Let's let's all be Good. responsible <laughs> for our own behavior in these moments. Um, and uh, here's here's the other thing I know. You know, if somebody were to go after my kids, who I feel very protective about, uh, of course, I hope I'd respond in a way, um, you know, that I'd respond the right way. But in this situation, I, I hope that if it were me, that I would have just said, Hey, it's okay. We'll, we'll figure it out later. But it happened so fast, you know, and there was in the, in the public eye. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about, you don't show up in a situation as just yourself, right? You show up with your history, with your family. And, and clearly Marvin mentioned there's, there's more going on, probably more than, than we even know. Right. And, um, so it's, yeah, in terms of what, a wife would want or uh, no, just I can't be yourself, speak for, sure. for yeah. Jada. Yeah. But for myself, I would say, yeah, you know, I, I, um, I would hope that my husband would not <laughs> resort to physical violence to defend me. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, I, I, hopefully in that space, I'd have the presence of mind and jump up and say, it's okay. We'll handle it. We'll handle it in our own way later. Uh, I also appreciate Marvin, your reminder that fundamentally what it is, is really tragic. That's, yeah. that's actually yeah. what it is. And yeah. that's a great um, position to, I think, land that conversation. My final question, and then we'll just summarize um, a question for each of you. Marvin, you first. Uh, what do you as a black man wish that me as a white man would know that I might not know? Or maybe what's one thing that would be helpful for me to know? Yeah, I, th- I, think, that's a, I think that's a really interesting question is it's probably a, a, a complex question and what I, what would I want you to know about me I, I think the, the the history of of um, of of race in this country it continues and it's not it's not it, it, it's like it, it's it's like the lifelong journey of Jesus right and it's it is a ongoing processing it is an ongoing relationship it's an onion that has many layers that um uh that i would hope i would hope that you would not um quit when it gets tough i would hope that you are so vested in the body of Jesus looking like the body of Jesus is going to look in heaven, that you would, even when it's hard, that you would continue. So I deal with this every single day. Every day I am processing, I am having a conversation and, and that I would hope that you would know that. 
that this is not just something that I can peel my skin off and somehow I'm different, that this is the skin that I live in every day and that, um, and, and this is the battle that I deal with every day. Um, you as a white man, you, I, I, I love you. You're, you know, again, one of my favorite voices on, on this, um, but that you get to, you get to go home and nice. you don't have to deal with it if you don't want to deal with it. Um, but, but I have to deal with it uh, every single day. And, uh, and I would hope that there's um, engagement to say, Marvin, how are you doing? And, um, and how can I pray for you? How can I come alongside you? I think that to me would be super, super helpful knowing that you're thinking about the issue as much as I'm thinking about the issue. Oh man, I, I, I really appreciate that gift that you just gave me because this, this will probably sound very familiar to you as the way a white person thinks, but in seminary, Dr. Alolia's challenge was such a gift to where I wouldn't have used this language, but until Charlottesville, I kind of thought I got it. And I remember in the 2016 election being shocked that President Trump became the president. I couldn't believe he was voted in. Um, and when I called my black friends, they were shocked that I was shocked. They're like, what? What? Like, we live in the same country. How can you possibly be surprised? And it was a fresh realization for me that it, that that's part of what it means to have privilege is the op, opt-in. I get the option to opt-in mm. to something that you have to navigate every day. That's a great, that's a great term. Great yeah, phrase. I appreciate okay. it. Gina, how about you, both as a woman in ministry, which is a massive challenge in a, in a still predominantly male-driven culture, and then as a non-white leader? Yeah, I think it's um, the question I'm always asking is, do I belong here? Is it okay that I'm here? Um, how long can I stay, you know, before something happens that, uh, you know, maybe was simmering under the surface that I didn't know about? And I think that question is always um, kind of the undercurrent hmm. is, is it okay that I'm here doing what I'm doing uh, for everyone else? <laughs> Which, you know, you know that, so that's the question I'm asking. And that anytime um, a question comes up, whether it's about women serving in ministry, whether it's around race, that what for everybody else uh, is an intellectual pursuit at times, it's very personal. And, uh, you know, Marvin, you hit on this too, but it's, I, I live with it, you know, and um, what we can talk about in terms of theory and uh, for me is, is, gets to who I am and my identity, right? And so, um, and I think for me, for, uh, leaders and people that work with me to know, hey, what I hope is that, you know, when we're really in community together, your problem becomes my problem. I hope that's how we can uh, be with each other. That if you've got a problem, hey, I, I want to understand it and I, it's going to become my problem too. And uh, that's kind of what I, what I hope for others. Uh, you know, I think sometimes as, a, as an Asian woman too, you get kind of, you can become kind of invisible. And, you know, even in some of the contexts I'm in, I, um, I, I feel very much like the the black community has gone before us, has bore the burden of and kind of paved the way for so many of these conversations. Um, and just because of the, the history of race in our country has really uh, bore the brunt of a lot of the racial burden in our country. And, um, 
it's sometimes hard to find our voice as Asians. Like, so what's our experience? It's not, it's not the same as the black experience. It is, um, not the same as the white experience. And, and so even in that, to, uh, I hope that people ask questions to draw out the nuance in that. Oh, thanks, Gina. That's, that's also, I think, equally helpful. And, and I think, um, as the white guy speaking, I think what I need to cultivate in my team, what I love about what you said, Gina, is how personal it is. And what that makes me think of is when we have a conversation that's interesting to me and gospel, but not personal, and it's not my lived experience, I need to give you all the freedom to express the personal aspect, whether that's through tears, outrage. I, I think as I've talked to a lot of black sisters and brothers, both, what they will say is they have to mitigate their outrage for my sake so that I don't then label them and dismiss them. Whereas I think what I need to provide is a, is room for your appropriate outrage uh, hmm. because justice has been violated without me feeling threatened and, and fragile. Um, a couple of things I want to wrap up with for our listeners is um, I do think the differentiation tool of choosing what's mine to carry, what's God's and what's theirs. A lot of what you guys have been saying is you feel hyper responsible for my experience of you. Mm. And therefore you are shape-shifting and not giving us your full self. And for those who want to keep following Marvin's journey, Marvin is doing his doctorate called My Whole Black Self. I, I can't wait for the thesis to come out and hopefully it be published in a popular level where we can all get it because we need, we need more of these voices. Gina, I want to thank you for initiating this conversation. I hope you guys will consider coming back on the show. I think we have to keep talking about it. Um, I know for me, where the journey turned was when I started studying Aboriginal theology. Dr. Anne Patel Gray was the first um, Aboriginal theologian in Australia to get a PhD. And she's a, a firecracker, a PhD in theology. And I wrote... Um, Cry, crying from the wilderness. I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly uh, through Aboriginal eyes was her first book, and I, I, I read this book. It was on the end of my non-white theology journey. I'd started with James Cone. No, I'd started with the Boff brothers in uh, in um, Southern Hemisphere, and then moved to James Cone, and off we went. Um, but I thought I have to read uh, the minority culture of my own country, and to discover in all of these voices a way of seeing scripture that brought it to life that I could not do. That was what made me realize how much I'm centering white voices, how much I'm assuming that the white voice is the right voice. Because Anne Patel Gray, (laughs) in her book, uh, Through Aboriginal Eyes, she says, um, it's the moral and ethical imperative of every Aboriginal Christian Hmm. to go to every white church in Australia and proclaim the gospel because they don't have it. That's a nice provocative start. (laughs) And she said, said, what is the gospel? The gospel is... Jesus died. You don't have to oppress people anymore. You're free from that. (laughs) And then she said, the other gospel is Jesus died. You don't have to own anything. You're free from your possession. Wow. Because Aboriginals are nomadic. And when I read that, I said, that sounds so much more like Jesus than what I preach. Wow. Wow. I think my invitation to all of us is this is a, this every tribe and tongue and nation is such a gift if for no other reason than the selfish reason that it, it actually enriches your own faith. But then, of course, the plight of your sister and bl- brother is your plight. That's the church. So 
Thank you both for coming on. I'd like to give you a final word, each of you. Uh, Gina, let's start with you. Anything you want to share and then Marvin, anything you want to share and that'll be our final word today. I just want to say thanks for uh, creating the space for us to have this conversation. I, I actually think that that is one of the most helpful things that we can do is just continue to create spaces, cultivate spaces, both you know, on podcasts, in our teams, um, where we can openly and honestly have the conversation. And um, yeah, so I'm just grateful that you did that. Yeah, I, I too am grateful, Steve, that you, um, you know, you differentiated and uh, and had this conversation because this is not a popular conversation, and um, and for for people who you know who are listening to podcasts sometimes, so it's so for for you to have um, the bravery and courage to have this conversation, um, I'm very very grateful. You are an, an important voice. Um, in dealing with leadership anxiety, and um, and I'm I'm super super grateful. And I don't think uh, this is not just a one time conversation. Um, I think the fact that you have a vision for doing this more with others, I think, is super important. And um, again, super grateful for your heart and your own journey, because you know the it you know again in in Friedman and others, they say the the. The transformation of the leader precedes the transformation of the organization. And so your own transformation, I believe, is going ahead of you to impact uh, others, uh, including including ourselves. Mm. I've been excited about this date for a long time, and you guys um, exceeded my excitement. So thank you so much for showing up as you did. Uh, Marvin, I know you and I will be getting together in November for coach training together. Can't wait for that. And Gina, yeah, I hope, hope so too. I'll be in Chicago, gosh, April or May for an IJM breakfast. So it'd be wonderful to connect. And I do hope I we gather that. these voices and more together and, and continue the chat. Thank you guys so much. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.